just going to I'm going to pray and then we will begin to to think together about um about these readings. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your blessing. Thank you that you sustain us and strengthen us. And thank you that you call us to holiness of life. Thank you that you want us to reflect who you are in the world. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to your word and your word to our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just want to um, show you a, a couple of slides before um, before we come off um, sharing a screen. Um, as you will know, over the last few um, weeks, we've been looking at this uh, Church of England initiative that they have asked um, all parishes to look at called Living in Love and Faith, exploring questions of uh, gender, sexuality, relationships and marriage. And uh, over the last few weeks, we've um, we've been blessed by uh, looking at what are called pastoral principles, if you like, helping us to see how to have this conversation. And, and we've had some wonderful talks. Um, we've looked at um, addressing ignorance. Um, Smi uh, spoke on that. Um, and we've also had um, acknowledging prejudice. Um, Alison uh, spoke on that. Um, speaking into silence. Richard uh, spoke that week. And um, uh, last week, Paul spoke on casting out fear. These are all sort of ways of having this, uh, this debate, this discussion. And there are a couple more um, to look at. And this week, we're looking at the final one, which is admitting hypocrisy. So that's our theme for today, admitting hypocrisy. I'm just going to stop sharing there so that we are uh, all together. And um, as I was uh, thinking about uh, this talk this week, I was uh, wondering how I could, as it were, give, a, give an example of hypocrisy. And um, I, I even asked the family, we, we had a chat about it around the, around the table. Um, but of course, in the end, we didn't really need to think of an example because um, we had one thrust into our into our consciousness, didn't we, this week when uh, Matt Hancock, the health secretary, um, was seen kissing and embracing uh, a, a member of his staff. And um, and everyone sort of immediately said, um, how can this man who's been telling us to keep apart for the last 18 months, uh, uh, how can he possibly stay in office? because he has uh, broken the very same rules. Strange that as a nation, we're, we're, uh, we're kind of got to the point where we are more um, sort of concerned about um, somebody breaking social distancing rules than we, that we might be um, breaking their marriage vows. But, um, but anyway, uh, there was an example of hypocrisy, wasn't it? Of saying one thing and of doing another. And just in case anyone is thinking, I'm trying to make a, a party political point, uh, let's be honest, all our politicians do it. I can think of a, a very prominent uh, Labour politician who uh, extols the, the virtues of, of state education. And then when push came to so shove, uh, they sent their child to a private school. And uh, it may not be so very long ago, you can remember uh, the Liberal Democrats going around the country signing things to say that they would uh, abolish tuition fees. And then the moment they got into power, they actually put them up. All our politicians do it. They say one thing and then they do another. And of course, it's not only our politicians. It is there in so many parts of our national life. Um, people, I'm sure, will remember uh, Jimmy Savile, who was, uh, although an odd character, many people saw him as a, a champion of charitable causes. But then in the end, 
as he was uh, sort of unmasked. It, it was seen that he was using that uh, front to abuse people. And of course, as soon as you begin to look at hypocrisy in other people, you begin that sort of creeping sense that it is there in all of us. Um, if you sat um, uh, my daughter Aisha down and uh, asked her what it was like driving in the car with me, uh, she would tell you about the way in which I chunter about the way people drive and park and generally behave in the roads around Spark Hill. But pretty much once or twice a day, I do exactly the things that I object to. And of course, when I do it, it's perfectly reasonable. It's all for a good reason. Whether it's the way we drive, the way we speak, the way we eat, whatever it is, it's always easier, isn't it, to give good advice than to actually follow it. It's so much easier to say what should be done than to do what should be done. And as we think about hypocrisy this morning, it's very easy to, as it were, create a new category of, of guilt, a new form of guilt, something that we can beat ourselves up with and say, ah, yes, we're hypocrites, we're awful, we're guilty, aren't we dreadful people? Can just say this morning, that is not what I want to do. Each of us is created in the image of God. Jesus has died for each of us and risen again so that we can be the children of God. He does not want us to live with or under guilt. So when we have a look at this word together, I want us to see how might it apply to us, but how might we also undo it and therefore become more Christ-like, more, as it were, one person. So we are like a stick of rock with the word going all the way through that we are at every point in our lives seeking to be as Christ would have us be. So what does this word mean and how might it be used in the Gospels? Of course, Jesus does use the, the word hypocrite or hypocrisy in the Gospels. And he often accuses this group of people called the Pharisees. He says that they are hypocrites. And um, certainly there are passages, particularly in, in Matthew's Gospel, when he says, woe to you, you hypocrites, and, and comes, at, comes at the Pharisees time and time again. And because he does that, we are perhaps used to thinking of the Pharisees as the villains of the Gospels. They're the, the ones who use the law to oppress people, to divide them and exclude them, to say we're in and you're out. We can think of stories where the Pharisees complain about Jesus mixing with sinners or eating with hands that are unclean or planning to kill Jesus after he healed on the Sabbath or dragging the woman caught in adultery before Jesus and expecting him to say that she should be stoned. We are used to thinking of the Pharisees as the bad guys of the gospel. And because they're the bad guys, we, pos we can't possibly be like them because we're the good guys. But I just want us to stop and think for a moment. The Pharisees weren't bad people, even if some of their leaders said and did bad things. The Pharisees were actually really good people. They loved God. And they loved the law and they tried to apply that word to every part of their lives in every possible way and detail. They wanted to bring God's word 
right down into every part of their lives. They went over and above what might have been expected in their commitment and dedication. They fasted more often than they had to. They tied everything. They prayed. They went to the temple. They read the law. They were deeply committed Jews. In other words, the Pharisees are a bit like us. Or maybe we are a bit like the Pharisees. We love the Lord. We love his word. We ask in the power of the Spirit that every part of our lives might come under his touch. We want to apply the scripture to every part of us. We are much more like the Pharisees than we may give ourselves credit for. So he asks, why is Jesus so hard on them when they are committed Jews trying to, to put the law into practice? The reason that Jesus is so hard on them is because they appear to have become so absorbed in doing particular things in a particular way that they had forgotten what the law is really all about. They've forgotten what the central message of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible is all about. So Jesus quotes to them time and time again the words from Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. You remember those amazing words from the prophet Amos when he says this, I hate, I despised your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me grain offerings and burnt offerings, I will not accept them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. And when Jesus stands up in Luke chapter 4 and takes the scroll of Isaiah, what does he say? He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. The scriptures are full of this glorious story of God's choice of Israel, his covenant love for them and his command, be holy as I am holy. Reflect my nature and my character. So the law is all about justice for the poor, freedom from the oppressed, and that the people of God might be a light to the Gentiles. So Jesus castigates the Pharisees like the one that we heard about in the parable that, that Isaac read for us. He castigates them not because they're not keen or committed. He castigates them because they have missed the point. The point is about mercy, about freedom, about love, about the unconditional love of God poured out that all people might know his forgiveness. So if that's the reason that the Pharisees were hypocrites, that the Pharisees were guilty of hypocrisy, how does that apply to me and to us? And I've tried to think about that this week. I've tried to say, well, if that's how the Pharisees were hypocritical, that they'd missed, that they'd missed the wood from the trees, they'd missed the central message because they got so bogged down in detail, 
I was trying to think, how might I, how might we be hypocrites? Might it be that in admitting hypocrisy, I have to admit that I, having tasted the goodness of God, having tasted his free, unconditional, all-encompassing love poured out through Jesus on the cross, made real in my life by the Holy Spirit, after I have touched and tasted all that goodness, as Paul says in, in Ephesians, by grace you have been saved. Is it that having tasted and touched all that, I then act and speak in such a way that I suggest that other people have got to get their act sorted before they can taste the goodness of God? Is that the hypocrisy lurking in me? That I somehow say, you've got to get this sorted out, or you've got to get that sorted out, or you've got to sort this out, and then you can come in. Then you can know the goodness of God. Then you can know the forgiveness. Whereas that was not my experience. My experience was of the free, unconditional love of God poured out for us. And if you begin to think about it, you'll see that it's there in the Gospels time and time again. Think of Zacchaeus, Jesus walking into that town and Zacchaeus is up the tree. He doesn't look up and say, Zacchaeus, get your act together and then I'll come round. He says, come down, I'm coming to your house for tea. And it's during that meal that Zacchaeus stands up and says, I'm giving away half my possession to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone, I'll pay them back four times as much. The woman who weeps at Jesus' feet and, 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 and wipes her, her, her hair on his feet. Does Jesus say, get away from me until you're sorted out? He doesn't. He makes her a beautiful example of what it means to have loving, committed dedication to Jesus. And then at the end of all that, he says, go and sin no more. When Peter uh, meets the risen Jesus in John chapter 21, does Peter sit him down and give him a long lecture about the way he's betrayed him and how he's going to have to get that sorted out until he can follow him? No, he doesn't. He eats with him. And then he has that conversation. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And the lost son who comes back to his father. Is his father drumming his fingers on the kitchen table waiting for him to come home? No, he's not. He's out looking for him. And as soon as he sees him, he runs to him. Jesus never says, get your life in order and then come and follow me. Because he knows that we'd never get there. We'd never get to the point of following him. He says, come and we'll work it out along the way. Friends, when we are looking at this subject, how do we express God's love to people in the LGBTQI plus community? Let's not say to them, you've got to get sorted out before you can taste the love of God. Let's say, come in, receive the blessing and the glory and the gorgeousness of the love of God. Receive it. Be flooded by it and then, like the rest of us, we'll work it out on the way. Amen.